Section twenty nine of the Freedman's Book by Lydia Maria Child. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Madison, Washington by L. Maria Child. This man was a slave born in Virginia. His lot was more tolerable than that of many who were doomed to bondage, but from his early youth he always longed to be free. Nature had in fact made him too intelligent and energetic to be contented in slavery. Perhaps he would have attempted to escape sooner than he did, had he not become in love with a beautiful octoroon slave named Susan. She was the daughter of her master, and the blood of the white race predominated in several of her ancestors. Her eyes were blue, and her glossy dark hair fell in soft silky ringlets. Her lover was an unmixed black, and he also was handsome. His features were well formed, and his large dark eyes were very bright and expressive. He had a manly air, his motions were easy and dignified, and altogether he looked like a being that would never consent to wear a chain. If he had hated slavery before, he naturally hated it worse after he had married Susan. For a handsome woman, who is a slave, is constantly liable to insult and wrong, from which an enslaved husband has no power to protect her. They laid plans to escape, but unfortunately their intention was discovered before they could carry it into effect. To avoid being sold to the far south, where he could have no hopes of ever rejoining his beloved Susan, he ran to the woods, where he remained concealed several months, suffering much from privation and anxiety. His wife knew where he was, and succeeded in conveying some messages to him without being detected. She persuaded him not to wait for a chance to take her with him, but to go to Canada and earn money enough to buy her freedom, and then she would go to him. He travelled only in the night, and by careful management, after a good deal of hardship, he reached the northern states, and passed into Canada. There he let himself out to work on the farm of a man named Dixon. He was so strong, industrious, intelligent, and well-behaved, that the farmer hoped to keep him a long time in his employ. He never mentioned that he was born a slave, for the idea was always hateful to him, and he thought also that circumstances might arise which would render it prudent to keep his own secret. He showed little inclination for conversation, and occupied every leisure moment in learning to read and write. He remained there half a year, without any tidings from his wife, for there are many difficulties in the way of slaves communicating with each other at a distance. He became sad and restless. His employer noticed it, and tried to cheer him up. One day he said to him, "'Madison, you seem to be discontented. What have you to complain of?' Do you think you are not treated well here? Or are you dissatisfied with the wages I give you? I have no complaint to make of my treatment, sir, replied Madison. You have been just and kind to me, and since you manifest so much interest in me, I will tell you what it is that makes me so gloomy. He then related his story, and told how his heart was homesick for his dear Susan. He said she was so handsome that they would ask a high price for her, and he had been calculating that it would take him years to earn enough to buy her. Meanwhile he knew not what might happen to her. There was no law to protect a slave, 
and he feared all sorts of things. Especially he was afraid they might sell her to the far south, where he could never trace her. So he said he had made up his mind to go back to Virginia and try to bring her away. Mr. Dixon urged him not to attempt it. He reminded him of the dangers he would incur, that he would run a great risk of getting back into slavery, and that perhaps he himself would be sold to the far south, where he would never be able to communicate with his wife. But Madison replied, "'I am well aware of that, sir. But freedom does me no good unless Susan can share it with me.' He accordingly left his safe place of refuge, and started for Virginia. He had free papers made out, which he thought would protect him till he arrived in the neighborhood where he was known. He also purchased several small files and saws, which he concealed in the lining of his clothes. With these tools, he thought, he could effect his escape from prison, if he should be taken up on the suspicion of being a runaway slave. Passing through the state of Ohio, he met several who had previously seen him on his way to Canada. They all tried to persuade him not to go back to Virginia, telling him there were nine chances out of ten that he would get caught and carried back into slavery again. But his answer always was, Freedom does me no good while my wife is a slave. When he came to the region where he was known, he hid in woods and swamps during the day and traveled only in the night. At last he came in sight of his master's farm and hid himself in the woods nearby. There he remained several days in a dreadful state of suspense and anxiety. He could not contrive any means to obtain information concerning his wife. He was afraid they might have sold her, for fear she would follow him. He prowled about in the night, in hopes of seeing some old acquaintance, who would tell him whether she was still at the old place, but he saw no one whom he could venture to trust. At last fortune favored him. One evening he heard many voices singing, and he knew by their songs that they were slaves. As they passed up the road, he came out from the woods and joined them. There were so many of them that the addition of one more was not noticed. He found that they were slaves from several plantations, who had permits from their masters to go to a corn-shucking. They were merry, for they were expecting to have a lively time and a comfortable supper. Being a moonless evening, they could not see Madison's face, and he was careful not to let them discover who he was. He went with them to the corn-shucking, and, keeping himself in the shadow all the time, he contrived, in the course of conversation, to find out all he wanted to know. Susan was not sold, and she was living in the same house where he had left her. He was hungry, for he had been several days without food, except such as he could pick up in the woods, but he did not dare to show his face at the supper, where dozens would be sure to recognize him. So he skulked away in the woods again, happy in the consciousness that his Susan was not far off. He resolved to attempt to see her the next night. He was afraid to tap at her window after all the people in the great house were abed and asleep, for as she supposed he was in Canada, he thought she might be frightened and call somebody. He therefore ventured to approach her room in the evening. Unfortunately, the overseer saw him, 
and called a number of whites, who rushed into the room just as he entered it. He fought hard, and knocked down three of them in his efforts to escape. But they struck at him with their bowie knives till he was so faint with loss of blood that he could resist no longer. They chained him and carried him to Richmond, where he was placed in the jail. His prospects were now dreary enough. His long-cherished hope of being united to his dear wife vanished away in the darkness of despair. There was a slave-trader in Richmond buying a gang of slaves for the market of New Orleans. Madison Washington was sold to him, and carried on board the brig Creole, owned by Johnson and Epperson, of Richmond, and commanded by Captain Ensign. The brig was lying at the dock waiting for her cargo, which consisted of tobacco, hemp, flax, and slaves. There were two separate cabins for the slaves, one for the men and the other for the women. Some of the poor creatures belonged to Johnson and Epperson, some to Thomas McCargo, and some to Henry Hewell. Each had a private little history of separation and sorrow. There was many a bleeding heart there, beside the noble heart that was throbbing in the bosom of Madison Washington. His purchasers saw that he was intelligent, and they knew that he was sold for having escaped to Canada. He was therefore chained to the floor of the cabin and closely watched. He seemed quiet and even cheerful, and they concluded that he was reconciled to his fate. On the contrary, he was never further from such a state of mind. He closely observed the slaves who were in the cabin with him. His discriminating eye soon selected those whom he could trust. To them he whispered that there were more than a hundred slaves on board, and a few whites. He had his saws and files still hidden in the lining of his clothes. These were busily used to open their chains, while the captain and crew were asleep. They still continued to wear their chains, and no one suspected that they could slip their hands and feet out at their pleasure. When the Creole had been nine days out, they encountered rough weather. Most of the slaves were seasick, and therefore not watched so closely as usual. On the night of November 7, 1841, the wind was blowing hard. The captain and mate were on deck, and nearly all the crew. Mr. Henry Hewell, one of the owners of the cargo of slaves, who had formerly been a slave-driver on a plantation, was seated on the companion, smoking a cigar. The first watch had just been summoned, when Madison Washington sprang on deck, followed by eighteen other slaves. They seized whatever they could find to use as weapons. Hewell drew a pistol from under his coat, fired at one of the slaves, and killed him. Madison Washington struck at him with a capstan bar, and he fell dead at his feet. The first and second mates both attacked Madison at once. His strong arms threw them upon the deck wounded, but not killed. He fought for freedom, not for revenge, and as soon as they had disarmed the whites and secured them safely, he called out to his accomplices not to shed blood. With his own hands he dressed the wounds of the crew, and told them they had nothing to fear if they would obey his orders. The man who had been a chained slave half an hour before was now master of the vessel, and his grateful companions called him Captain Washington. 
being ignorant of navigation he told merritt the first mate that he should have the freedom of the deck if he would take an oath to carry the brig faithfully into the nearest port of the british west indies and he was afraid to do otherwise the next morning captain washington ordered the cook to prepare the best breakfast the storeroom could furnish for it was his intention to give all the freed slaves a good meal the women who had been greatly frightened by the tumult the night before were glad enough to come out of their close cabin into the fresh air and who do you think was among them susan the beautiful young wife of madison was there she had been accused of communicating with her husband in canada and being therefore considered a dangerous person she had been sold to the slave trader to be carried to the market of new orleans neither of them knew that the other was on board with a cry of surprise and joy they rushed into each other's arms the freed slaves threw up their caps and hurrahed again and again till the sea-gulls wondered at the noise oh it was a joyful joyful time captain washington was repaid for all he had suffered he had gained his own liberty after having struggled for it in vain for years he had freed a hundred and thirty-four of his oppressed brethren and sisters and he had his beloved susan in his arms carrying her to a land where the laws would protect their domestic happiness he felt richer at that moment than any king with a golden crown upon his head there had been but two lives lost one white man was killed in the affray and he was the slave-driver who shot down one of the slaves captain ensign and others who were wounded were kindly cared for by captain washington they proved ungrateful and tried to regain possession of the vessel and the slaves the blacks were so exasperated by this attempt that they wanted to kill all the whites on board but captain washington called out to them we have got our liberty and that is all we have been fighting for let no more blood be shed i have promised to protect these men they have shown that they are not worthy of it but let us be magnanimous next morning the creole arrived at nassau in the island of new providence captain washington and his companions sprang out upon free soil there he and his beloved susan are living under the protection of laws which make no distinctions on account of complexion end of madison washington recording by rhonda fetterman